This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. I'm Bill Radke. This is Subtext, What Goes Unsaid. I looked down on my watch and I realized I've been standing there for 20 minutes, staring at the canned food. And I go, I better go talk to somebody. (laughs) Sean Wong is one of Seattle's most celebrated writers, a novelist, anthologist, and a creative writing professor at the University of Washington. In 2013, he got a phone call from his friend, the actor Tom Skerritt. Skerritt was in Top Gun, Alien, Steel Magnolias. Anyway, he lives in the Seattle area. And Skerritt told Wong about a disturbing statistic, that soldiers and veterans were dying by suicide at a rate of 22 per day. When we did a little more investigation, we found that family members, uh, as well as uh, Members of the military, you know, said that no one was listening to their story. And so Tom said, gathered together some of his friends, uh, several of us are screenwriters or novelists, and um, said, well, we know how to teach storytelling. So let's teach them how to tell a story. So the point was, there's a lot of silence, particularly, I think, for... Uh, young men and women in the military, you know, who may have become injured in combat or have mental health issues or emotional health issues upon returning. Our storytelling workshop actually became part of their medical therapy. The workshops began at Joint Base Lewis-McChord near Tacoma. Wong and Skerritt and their partners are not war veterans and they're not health professionals. They just relied on three simple principles of storytelling. Now, the three principles were uh, you can't change anything in your past, right? Uh, can't change the events that may have caused your injuries. But as a writer, you can control the message of that, of that event. And I don't think that really occurred to a lot of the soldiers that uh, they can control the message of what happened to them. What does that mean, control the message? They can tell that story, but they can tell it in their own words rather than to simply repeat the facts. For example, the second principle of our workshop is tell the truth, not the facts. And so it takes a little bit of um, teaching for them to figure out what's the difference between telling the truth and telling the facts, right? So there might be the facts of their injury, you know, how they got injured in, in combat or in training or whatever. But underneath those facts is uh, the truth that often uh, someone not, might be unwilling to express. And I can give you examples of that later. But the third principle of our storytelling workshops, that is everything you write in our workshop must indicate what it is you're trying to understand, not what it is you already know. Right? So the common cliche in creative writing workshops is write what you know. Mm-hmm. And for us, it's write what you are trying to understand. You said that there is a silence involved when it comes to these veterans. What do you mean by silence here? The silence that they exhibit or experience is an, an unwillingness to try to express into terms 
what their experience was to people who are not part of that military life or have never been in combat or, you know, obviously have never been to Afghanistan or Iraq. And uh, when you come home from those uh, situations and if you're injured, no one really understands except those you may have been in service with. The other thing they're reluctant to talk about is just the fact that uh, when they're dealing with army medical personnel, they're always taking notes that go into your health records. And so it's not really a safe environment for, <laughs> you know, group therapy <laughs> when you know that uh, financially something you say might affect how the army <laughs> pays out that disability. And, mm. But in our workshop, one of the things that is most important is to provide a safe environment for them to tell their stories. We started working with, with the soldiers and they opened up. Would you tell me a story about that? So here's a great story about uh, telling the truth over the facts, right? So uh, we have a young man who was probably in his early 20s um, and he was injured by a suicide bomber in Afghanistan. A suicide bomber detonated his suicide vest right in front of him while he was on guard duty. And he spent an entire year in a hospital recovering. He um, uh, was actually slated to go home and to because his father was sick and had uh, cancer. And three days after he was wounded, severely wounded, uh, he got word that his father died. And... Um, and of course, he's, uh, I believe he was in Germany in a hospital at that time. And, and um, so I said to him one day in class, I said, uh, do you want to write that story about how you got injured? And he said, no, I don't want to write that story. I know that story, right? And he goes, I relive that story every year in a hospital bed. Right? He goes, I said, so what story do you want to write? And he says, I want to write the story about me sitting at my father's bedside and telling him the things that I was going to tell him. And so he wrote that. And that's what we mean by tell the truth, not the facts, right? No one can deny that what he wrote is not truthful. Right? It's not factually true, but it's truthful. It's the story that he relived in his mind while he was in the hospital bed, you know, and he never got the chance to, to, to be that son who sat at his father's side. But in writing, it's, it's that other principle of our workshop, which is you can't change anything in your past, but uh, as a writer, you can control the message of that event. And so what he was doing was rectifying history, right? And setting aside his injury and being the son who sat at his father's bedside while he was dying, you know. And there, there cannot be a, a more truthful moment than that for a young man like this, the, the soldier. You said that one principle is write what, what did you say? Write what you're trying to understand, not what you know? Yeah, write what you're trying to, your writing should always show what it is you're trying to understand, not what it is you already know. Can you tell me an example of that? Yeah. Um, 
So, for example, and all of these sort of cross boundaries with each other, and, and the perfect uh, response to our writing assignment was when something has all three elements in it. Uh, I had a young uh, woman in my workshop at the Walla Walla Veterans Center, and uh, she uh, was our fir very first session with our workshop. And I mentioned this thing about how you can't change anything in your past, you know, know the three principles, and, but as a writer, you can control the message. Anyway, um, at the end of the workshop uh, session, she came up to me and handed me a piece of paper with uh, one paragraph written in pencil on it. And she said, uh, I'd like you to read this. I wrote it in class. And it was a paragraph that simply said that from the age of nine until she left home, her father sexually abused her. Um, and, um, you know, just a, a couple of, of, uh, of things about that, but it was just a very short paragraph. Uh, she's probably in her, I would say, early 30s at that time when she was in our class. And I looked at her and I said, well, why did you write this? And she said, uh, because of what you said, my writing should show what it is I'm trying to understand, not what I already know. And she said, also, when you said that as a writer, you can control the message of what happened to you in the past rather than to have it control you. And she said, I didn't know that. And so I wrote it down. And she said to me, this was a surprising part. Um, you're only the third person who even knows that story. You know, her mother, her father, you know, and now me. You know, and it had remained buried for decades, <laughs> you know. And um, uh, so it was something as simple as that, you know. Here's what your responsibility is to yourself in your writing. Did she say what it was she was trying to understand about what happened to her? I think she was just trying to break the silence, you know at least by writing it down um, and letting go of it, right? And I saw that over and over among the veterans. Once they wrote something down, they started to let go of it, you know? Like I, I would have this assignment that's called my biggest regret. <laughs> and uh, everybody's got one, <laughs> but are you willing to explore it, right? And they were, you know? and. And once they, and a lot of times these regrets are something that they held on to for, from maybe when they were even teenagers, right? And that they, you know, they were cruel to somebody or something like that, you know, and often something quite simple. And they don't realize that uh, you're a completely different person later in life. You know, you're not the same person who may have uh, committed that cruel act or something like that, you know, or, or did something uh, uh, that you would never do in your current age, let's say they were 40, you know, years old or something like that. And, and uh, uh, <laughs> I remember one young, uh, one man who's in his 40s, and, and he wrote down his biggest regret, which was when he was in basic training with this other young man, they were both in there like uh, 19, 20 years old. And this other young man got severely injured in basic training, and he didn't help him, you know. Um, he got help later, but at the time, he didn't help him. 
And um, 20 years later, he was still talking about it. And I said to him, this happened 20 years ago when you were 19 or 20? He goes, yeah. And I said, um, uh, you would never do that today, would you? He goes, no. Uh, you would get help, right? He goes, yeah. And I said, why is that? He goes, I don't know. I said, well, you know, you're a different person now. You're 40 years old. You know, you know a thing or two, <laughs> right? And he said, oh, yeah. I said, I think you could let it go. And uh, next day he came back to uh, class. This was at uh, Joint Base Lewis-McChord. And uh, I said, so did you think about what I said? He goes, yeah, I, I had an appointment with my therapist. And I told her what you said. And um, I said, what did she say? She said, you should try that. And he goes, and so I let it go. And I said, how long have you been working on this issue? He says, uh, uh, I've been working on it with my therapist for over a year. <laughs> and I said, your therapist owes me some money. <laughs> and his whole life changed. It was really interesting. His whole life changed when he finally let go of that. And to me, it was so simple. You're not 19-year-old kid. You know, <laughs> you're not that person who turned his back on somebody. <laughs> we'll continue the show after a short break. This is Subtext. Now, back to my conversation with Sean Wong. How does writing it down, storytelling, how does that help you let it go? What, what happens? I think for the soldiers and the veterans, when they write it down, um, it becomes something else. You know, it becomes, a, it becomes uh, for lack of a better word, it becomes a product that you made, that you have power over, right? You can revise it. You can change it. It can even be, uh, we had a young woman in our class who didn't write a thing for probably almost a year. You know, because we said, you don't have to write anything. But she realized that she could, later she realized she could write a story in which she's the fictional character, you know, maybe observing herself. And con constructions like that allow them to step back, you know, from that, uh, that thing that controls them or controls their mental health. You told me once that everybody has something that they are really trying to understand. Yeah, I think everybody carries around, uh, my friend Warren Etheridge calls it, uh, that I work with in Red Badge Project, he, uh, he calls it their nugget. You know, it's your thing that you're always trying to define and understand, you know. Not just writers, but everybody? Yeah, everybody has a nugget, you know. Am I loved? Uh, am I honest? Am I worthy? You know, um, am I truthful? That kind of thing. Uh, so everybody has that kind of nugget, and especially artists and musicians and painters and writers and actors and directors, you know. Um, it may be something from your childhood or um, some uh, event, you know, and it's always the subtext of 
behind your work. Subtext. May I ask what your nugget is, Sean Wong? <laughs> My nugget is pretty simple. It's uh, I'm always trying to explore aspects of absence. You know, uh, the absence of somebody from your life. You know, and and how do you um, how do you process that? How do you deal with that? You know, uh, how do you define that that sort of empty space created by? Uh, somebody who's lost to you or you stepped away from or, you know, whatever. You have a firsthand experience. Right. So probably the best example is, you know, my my father died of cancer when I was seven. And, um, and my mother passed away when I was uh, 15. And I have no siblings. And so there's two things that happen to you. You know, there's the absence, your loss of your parents but also um, there's a kind of freedom too on top of that. You know, their, their loss creates a kind of vacuum, you know, in your life that you have to fill somehow. I moved in, you know, with my aunt and finished high school and then went off to college. And, and I grew up in a, in a generation of, of baby boomers who, um, you know, in the 60s and 70s were rebelling against their parents, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> rebelling against the establishment, right? I graduated from high school in 1967, the summer of love in the Bay Area. And I graduated from Berkeley High School. And... Um, uh, right in the middle of it all. Yeah, and, and uh, went off to San Francisco State and, you know. Um, so I was in the middle of it all. At the same time, I couldn't understand why my peers were rebelling against their parents. <laughs> it's like, what? What are you rebelling against? <laughs> you, know, mm. you know, you have parents, right? I mean, I could understand, uh, but I had a kind of freedom to do whatever I wanted, right? And and uh, which was a little bit odd because it's sort of like maybe you didn't want that freedom, but there it was. You know, I could be whatever I wanted and. And uh, I didn't have a tiger mother saying you have to be a doctor, <laughs> you know, that yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, you have to get straight A's. And <laughs> so I decided I want to be a writer. <laughs> and um, I didn't have to explain that to anybody. Right. And I think in, in my generation, you know, your parent dies and uh, there's no therapy. <laughs> you, know, you don't go to therapy. Uh, you just uh, figure out what your role is, and then you, you occupy it. So, for example, after my father died, I think all my mother said to me was, well, you're the man of the family now. And so at age seven, I realized, okay, I guess I got to grow up and take care of my mother. But you had to fill all of that space. By the age of nine, uh, there was no more babysitters and things like that, you know. If she had to go out, it's just me at home, you know, trying to fill that space. So absence comes in a lot of different forms, you know, not just the loss of your parents, but also, you know, that empty space where there's a lot of silence and nobody's talking. <laughs> this is another aspect of my theme, what goes unsaid. Was, right. it, was, that, was that absence of that silence important to you then? 
I think so. And, and of course, later on, I realized that you could fill that with writing, mm -hmm. right? Which is a sort of different kind of silence, but at least you were saying something, quote unquote, saying something. Mm -hmm. And it took me a long time to figure out a way to, um, to speak. I think to have um, personal relationships and to speak uh, to, to somebody uh, other than my mother, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and... Uh, and so I think my writing is always coming to terms with that or trying to define that in different ways. I think I saw you said somewhere that your, your second novel, that you wrote it for your wife who also left you, who died. Were you struggling to understand that's a very different kind of absence than losing your parents at a very young age? But was, was that absence important to you as a writer? Uh, important to your, your nugget, what you need to understand? Yeah, so um, when I faced my, um, uh, my wife actually died at home in my arms on Christmas morning, 1997. And uh, um, I, um, I thought I knew, how to, I knew how to strategize and live my life because both my parents had died. So in my mind, uh, intellectually, I thought, I can handle this, you know. One, I was prepared for it, and uh, you know, once she went into hospice care, you know, it's, it's, uh, you're sort of able to prepare for it. And the hospice nurse was really good at helping me prepare for it. And um, I, I remember thinking, after she passed away, this is completely different <laughs> than the death of my parents. And I thought I would be the same. Uh, and I remember I went to a therapist, finally, <laughs> when I realized, and it was really interesting. And I, I do this with the soldiers I teach, too, because uh, I realized that I had uh, PTSD one day when I was in the supermarket. And I was standing in front of the canned food aisle, rarely buy canned foods. And I was standing there um, after couple weeks after my wife died and I looked down on my watch and I realized I've been standing there for 20 minutes <laughs> staring at the canned food and I go oh, I better go talk to somebody <laughs> and so I went to talk to the therapist and, and I said well I should be able to process this because my parents died and um, I said why can't I and he says it's actually quite simple he said um, when your father died, who did your mother have? And I go, me. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, and uh, when your wife died, who did you have? I go, nobody. Right? We didn't have children. And um, he goes, that's the difference. He goes, you're all alone. You know, and... Uh, uh, and that's completely different. Not only is it a different that your spouse dies instead of your parents, but it's completely different. You know, and you suddenly find yourself at uh, almost age fifty uh, uh, being alone. It was interesting too because at age forty-eight, uh, I had never lived alone. You know, after my mother died, I lived with my aunt. So it's a uh, just having somebody explain that to me helped me kind of understand. That, that absence is kind of different. And, and I think in my writing, I'm always sort of trying to 
come to terms with that and, and find ways to explore that in the, in the fiction I write. You know, it's not always about me, but I'm still trying. It's, a, it's the subtext underneath what the characters experience. What do you want to say about silence and storytelling to someone listening who's neither a novelist nor a wounded warrior? Why, why does this matter to all of us? I think it matters because everybody has a story. You know, one of the things that I do with the, the veterans, I have this exercise in which um, I say, write down every, let's make a list of every job you had between from until you were age 25. Um, especially for like Vietnam veterans who are my age, come from a generation where everybody worked. Right? And, and so I think uh, in my list, I have 16 jobs I had before I was 25 years old. Everything from newspaper boy, mowing lawns, I, you know, it didn't need to be a formal job, but anything that you did to work for money, babysitting. And so everybody makes this list, you know? And you might be sitting in a room which, on visually, it looks like nobody has anything in common, you know, especially I'm out in eastern Washington with a bunch of veterans. And there's me, Chinese-American, and there are no other Asians in the room. <laughs> but as soon as we make that list, our lives start to cross. And there's a kind of, instead of a kind of displacement, it's a kind of inclusivity in which, for example, I worked in a flower shop, and in a class of 10, four other people had worked in flower shops. <laughs> and so immediately we had a bond, right? And, uh, and so we started to share stories. And I think that's what brings us together, I think, at a time in which our society is so incredibly divided. Sean Wong wrote the novels Home Base and American Needs, and he doesn't just tell stories professionally, he tells them generously. He's been teaching UW students to write for almost 40 years, and he's a founding instructor of the Red Badge Project, teaching storytelling to veterans suffering from PTSD, depression, trauma, or anxiety disorders. And he's still trying to understand what in his life has gone unsaid. That's today's episode of Subtext. Our next episode is going to be devoted to the listeners of this series who called me and emailed me to tell me what else has gone unsaid. Uh, yeah, I started thinking about all of the things that we just can't say, and a lot of things came to mind for me. It's still a little hard to talk about. Join me for that next episode. I look forward to talking with you then. Subtext is hosted and written by me, Bill Radke, edited by Carol Smith and Laurel Morales, sound designed by Hans Twite. Alex Rochester is KUOW's digital community outreach coordinator. Melissa Takai designed our logo and artwork. Michaela Giannotti is KUOW's director of marketing. Brendan Sweeney is director of new content. Zeki Hamid directs community engagement for the station. Jennifer Strachan is KUOW's chief content officer.